we are, I am interested in not necessarily hitting a time target. I will teach till we're done. It's a fun adventure. I don't know if that's uh, 6.55 or 7.20, so we'll see. It's probably somewhere in the middle of that, so there's your target. Zephaniah is our next prophet. We are roughly going chronologically. When we look at the book of Zephaniah, he is one of the 7th century prophets. Um, Who can tell me what of significance happens in the 7th century? That's the 600s B.C. Anything significant in our Bible timeline? Okay, Judah's going to be taken into captivity in three waves. The first two are going to be at the very end of the 7th century. Um, So when we look at Zephaniah, anybody know who his audience is? Who is he addressing it to? Remember our earlier, so if this is 7th century, this is the 600s, who do we know he's not writing to? Who's already gone? Israel, the northern kingdom. Remember they were taken into captivity in 722 by the Assyrians. The Assyrians were the major power at the time. And God used them in order to exact punishment on Israel for their sin. There was not one righteous king from Jeroboam all the way to the end. They go into captivity. So we know that Zephaniah is not writing to the northern kingdom. We also know he's not writing to an enemy. I mean, he is going to have some words for other nations. But who is his primary audience? If you have your Bible open and you're scanning the page, you've probably already seen it. Judah. Judah is the nation, all right? So it's the southern kingdom. There are two tribes in the south, Judah and Benjamin. And they make up that kingdom. Now what's the capital of Judah? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. All right, so we're going to have a focus, as you can see again in chapter 1. That's who Zephaniah is writing to. So what I want to do is follow the same pattern. You should have that on the worksheet that you have in front of you. What we're going to do is a background and an introduction we're going to give then an outline and an exegesis. An outline is just a, if I wanted to know Zephaniah at an overview glance, what would it, how would it break down? When we talk about exegesis, that's more of uh, how are ways we can understand how he is meeting his theme. There's a theme to the book of Zephaniah. By the way, at the top of your Bible, does anybody have maybe kind of like a caption of what Zephaniah is about? Maybe a little phrase? It may be over the book, it may be under the title, it may be at chapter 1, right over chapter 1. The day of the Lord. So when our boys were little, we used to have like little Bible drills sometimes, and we'd ask them, like for the, the prophets, you know, associate something with each of the prophets. Nahum was the prophet of comfort, Jeremiah is the weeping prophet. But when we wanted them to remember Zephaniah, we wanted them to remember the day of the Lord. Now, I understand, you do too, that that's not the only minor prophet that talks about the day of the Lord. Do you remember one earlier? Uh, Hiram would have taught that one that talked a lot about the day of the Lord? Joel. All right, so Zephaniah is going to be talking about the day of the Lord. By the way, 25 times he's going to mention the day. This is a short book, only three chapters, so it's very prominent in the writing of Zephaniah. So he's writing to the southern kingdom. He's writing to them before they go into Babylonian captivity. And we're going to be able to establish that in just a moment. Now, I don't know what you have in your Bibles. Study Bibles are different from one another. Does anybody have a, a description, a footnote or something that tells us what the name Zephaniah means? Hidden of the Lord. Yeah, hidden of God. Okay, now, um, 
I don't know if this is something you want to note in your Bible, but Zephaniah is a smart man. He is one of the more intellectual of the minor prophets. He is going to be... And the thing is, if we were uh, Jews and we could read Hebrew, we'd really be wowed as we see some of the things he does, some of the wordplay that he does. He does a lot of it. Um, but since we don't have that, I'm going to point out a couple of them as you go through where he's kind of doing some, some neat things. But some of it you can see in the English. So we'll get to that um, when we start digging into the book. Um, but why would Zephaniah be called the one whom God hides? And some interesting theories about that as we kind of do a background into him. He would have likely been born during the reign of King Manasseh. Does anybody know anything about Manasseh? Kind of what's the good or bad? Okay, so he was so bad, he is the reason why. He's the stated reason why in Jeremiah that Judah, the southern kingdom, is going to go into Babylonian captivity. No matter what happens next, the, the impact of that wicked decision, God says it's over the line. And so it's going to have to be punished. Now, if you'll study the, the reign of, of Manasseh, 2 Kings 21 through 2 Kings 24, you're going to find that he's actually pretty good uh, in the latter part of his reign. He reigns for 55 years. Um, but about the time that Zephaniah likely would have been born, um, just if you just want to write yourself a note, read 2 Kings 21. Write that out maybe beside Manasseh. And especially verse 1 through 9, and it's just like it's the worst of the worst. The baddest things that a man who was supposed to be a descendant of Abraham could do, that's Manasseh. It's horrible. But at the top of the list, Jeremiah 7 and verse 31, is that he sheds innocent blood throughout Jerusalem, from one end of Jerusalem to the other, and that included the innocent lives of babies. So I wonder, here's Zephaniah's parents who are having Zephaniah at the time in which Manasseh is in the earlier part of his reign, who are maybe, maybe naming him in prayer. Hide him. Hide him from Manasseh so that he doesn't suffer this fate. So Zephaniah's name is established for us. And another interesting thing, what do you see about Zephaniah in the introduction? One verse is devoted to the introduction of Zephaniah. Anything kind of stand out to you? How does it start? Somebody just read it for me, if you don't mind. Verse 1. Okay, so there we go. There's the... There's the, the uh, the pedigree of Zephaniah. What's unusual about that? There's 12 minor prophets. It goes way on back in the lineage. None of the others do that. You might get a he's a son of, but you don't get he's a son of a son of a son of a, not a, a sailor, but a son of a son of a son of a son. All right, so why is Hezekiah? Who's Hezekiah? He's a king, king of Judah. How would you characterize him? He's a good king. All right, so here's what you have. Who, who's, whose reign is Zephaniah prophesying during? It's right there in verse 1. Josiah. Josiah, good king, bad king. As good as they come. And overall, uh, you know, even better than David because you don't kind of have the baggage that David has in his reign. So you have Hezekiah, his great-great-grandfather, and you have Josiah, presumably... Related to him somehow, it would have to be, right? If they share a great-great-grandfather, there's some blood relation between them. Maybe a half-brother? Maybe, I don't know, I, it makes my brain, I couldn't figure it out either. So they're related somehow. How about Manasseh? What's his relationship to Hezekiah? Anybody know? He's a son. 
So what does that say about Manasseh and Zephaniah? You didn't know you were going to genealogy class tonight, did you? What, what's, what, is that, what can we presume? Likely. They have to be related in some way. Step-uncle, half-uncle, great-uncle. So isn't that interesting? We'll get to that in just a second. You're right. That's a very important point I want to make here. That's right. But Hezekiah is definitely a direct descendant. He's a great-great-grandfather. Why would Zephaniah tie himself to Hezekiah? Wouldn't you? If you were the great, yeah, if you're the great-great-grandson of the president, uh, especially as a president that would have been favorably looked on by the, your fellow citizens, it's a great way to give legitimacy to your message. I'm of royal descent. And I'm not just of royal descent. It's not wicked Ammon. It's not wicked Manasseh. It is righteous Hezekiah. You remember Hezekiah? Man, we get a lot more press about him. He's probably got more written about him in the divided kingdom period than any other king, Josiah being next. Remember Hezekiah? When you think about him, what do you think about? Yeah. Added 15 years to his life. On what basis? He, he humbled himself, he prayed, but what did he say in the prayer? Would you be willing to pray what he prayed? God, look at my life. And based on what I've been trying to do, please deliver me, heal me. And God would say, yeah, I'll give you 15 more years. I mean, that's, if you're fixing to die, 15 years is a pretty, pretty cushy gig to get that. And so we remember that about Hezekiah. Do you remember that the, what else happens with Hezekiah? What prophet tells the story of Hezekiah? Isaiah. Isaiah, I think, 38 and 39. And you have, you remember, the Assyrians, they have just wiped out uh, Israel. They've taken them up into captivity. And now they are the world power at the time. Remember that, because that's going to come into play here in this book. So they're on the march. And they come to the city of Jerusalem. And they're standing outside the wall. And they have these messengers on behalf of the army. And they begin to speak to the people. What's significant about that? What does Assyrian speak? What do Assyrians natively speak? Aramaic. Okay? Not Hebrew. But what do those messengers do? They're, they're talking trash in Hebrew. And so at the gate they say, please, we can understand your language. Speak this in your language. He's like, no, I want everybody to hear this, that you're putting your trust in Hezekiah, and Hezekiah's putting his trust in God, and that's misplaced. So just watch out. And, and what happens? How does it turn out? Anybody remember? How about, how about an entire army is wiped out by God in one night? And Assyria goes back north uh, with their tails tucked between their legs. They did not breach Judah at the time. And so there's going to be a continued uh, dynasty. The, the, the kingdom of Israel, of Judah rather, is going to continue for over a hundred years. Now we're getting closer to Judah going into Babylonian captivity. It's going to be talked about tonight, but they're not, the, the enemy is not going to be specifically mentioned. But Zephaniah says, I want to tie my message to a righteous king, and I want to speak to you, Josiah, maybe brother, maybe close relative, and I want you to hear what God has to say about how things are going right now. Because what do you remember about Josiah's reign? We say he's a righteous king, but what happens? You remember anything with Josiah? What does somebody find in the temple? The copy of the law. It got lost in the temple. Isn't that incredible? And what happens when the law is read to Josiah? 
He makes all these sweeping reforms. Right? He makes all these changes. And it's interesting that a lot of the changes that he makes are the very things that Zephaniah tells him, you don't need to be doing this. And we'll get into that when we get into the book. All right, Zephaniah. Uh, Zephaniah helps us to date his prophecy because he prophesied during the reign of Josiah. We have pretty good historical markers for that. That's 640 to 609. Remember, he reigned for 31 years. He would have continued to reign, except that he uh, foolishly takes on the Egyptian king as he's on his way to go up to help the Assyrians fight the Babylonians, and he kills Josiah. 609. And so there's going to be a, a series of kings that live who reign for a short period of time, and what's going to happen just a few years after Josiah dies? I mean, just a couple of years. The captivity begins. All right, so Zephaniah is really kind of the last the generation before it happens who is saying to Judah, get your life right, get straight so that you don't suffer this punishment. But, it, but the message is changing. The message is kind of now gearing toward get ready because it's coming, it's going to happen. Now when we talk about, remember what's at the top of your Bible, the day of the Lord? Uh, this is not a warm and fuzzy book. This is not a feel-good book like Nahum. Um, I think uh, Hiram is teaching that next week. It's about the same historical time, but it's a different audience, or it's about a different, uh, per, a different group. And so it's a lot more comforting message. This one's not, at least not a lot of it. All right, so one last background fact that Chuck kind of alluded to regarding Zephaniah is that he was almost certainly a black man. Here's how we know. He is the son of Cushai. Cush is a Hebrew word for Nubian. And it refers to that region just to the south and the southeast of Egypt. Uh, that is where today is the Sudan and Ethiopia and Central Africa. So they were a world power in the 8th century. They even uh, overtook Egypt. And they, the Nubian dynasty ruled in Egypt for about 70 years going into the 7th century. And so uh, to say that he is the son of Cushai, everywhere it appears in the Bible, it refers to uh, the Sudanese and the folks of Ethiopia. And so uh, with that dominance of the Cushites in Egypt, Egypt, if you look on a map, is just to the south of Palestine. And so their they're, they're southern neighbor... They're their, one of their chief trading partners. And so what happens when you have a trade partner? You think about our, our north of NAFTA and some of these agreements. What happens when your trade partners are right next door to you? You have a lot of interaction, right? And so as a result of that, we, you know, this is not a political statement. We've got borders. We've got a border to our south, a border to our north. Folks are coming through those borders, right? And so you have people coming up. And I don't know that they built a wall, nor could they in Palestine, but you had folks coming up from Cush. So there was probably a lot of intermarriage. And it was not unheard of for the Cushites to be in Jerusalem. If you want to go just a few years later in time, there is, it's a great lesson, the Old Testament Ethiopian eunuch in the book of Jeremiah. Anybody remember that story? It made an impression on me when I was in college because Brother Winkler uh, would preach is the other Ethiopian eunuch, you know. And, and it was the uh, in chapter 38 and 39 of Jeremiah. Remember Jeremiah um, uh, delivers this harsh message about judgment. And as a result of this, he's thrown into a cistern, perhaps a sewer. And there he sinks in the mire. 
and Abedmelech, the Cushite, comes along. And he has these old rags and he puts them under Jeremiah to kind of comfort him and cushion him. And he pulls him out. He advocates for him. He's a Cushite. They were around Jerusalem. So just an interesting fact. There's the man, Zephaniah. He is a, 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 a mixed heritage because Hezekiah is a Jew. That's his ancestor. And Cushai is a, his father. Uh, so um, but that's not what's important about him. Not his race, not his pedigree, but his message. All right, so let's get into the overview and the exegesis. And if you want some outlines, you may have some that are better than this. I'll give you a few of them. The first one is from Paige Kelly. Uh, four points on this outline. Chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 4, is the day of the Lord against Judah. Alright, so even though there's some other things going on, the first chapter, first verse, through chapter 2 and verse 4, is this day of the Lord judgment against Judah. Who's Judah? The southern kingdom. Alright, so this is God's people, David's descendants, the one through whom Jesus is going to come. Alright? Number two, you have prophecies against the nations. All right, so Zephaniah is going to focus on the neighbors of Jerusalem and Judah. That's chapter 2, verse 4 through 15. Number three, you have the Lord's indignation against Jerusalem, the capital city. That's chapter 3, verse 1 through verse 8. And then number four, you have hope beyond judgment. Look, chapter 1, 1 through 3, 8 is judgment. Chapter 3, verse 9 through 20 is hope. That's the book of Zephaniah. All right, here's another outline. Um, you have the judgment on the world in Judah in particular, chapter 1. Number 2, you have an uh, exhortation to repent and to persevere. That's chapter 2, 1 through chapter 3, verse 8. And then you have the promise of conversion and future happiness, chapter 3, verse 9 through 20. Now I can make it even more simple. We have chapter 1, ruin for Judah. Chapter 2, ruin for the world. Chapter 3, restoration for Judah and the world. And I can make it even more simple than that. Maybe you said, Neil, why don't you just start there? All right, that's okay. I've given you a lot of different ways to look at the book, I hope. Um, you can divide it into a book of prophecy of judgment, chapter 1, 1 through 3, 8, and future blessings, chapter 3, verse 9 through 20. Or, judgment and doom, same verses, joy and deliverance, 3, 9 through 20. Obviously, with that being a little bit of an alliteration, I like that one. It sticks in my head a little better. Alright, so let's think about the key words of the book. I mean, if you're a if you like to put keywords, here's here. Uh, if you were in my studying the Bible for all it's worth class about three or four years ago, why why do we want to know about keywords? What what significance does it have for a book? Okay, it helps us to determine the theme. You know, if you kind of think about it, there's more than letters as types of literature in the Bible. When you think about letters that are written, if you write, you know, uh, uh, y'all did y'all any of y'all keep your if any of you are old enough, and in your courtship days, you wrote letters back and forth to each other. Did you ever go back and read any of those again? Huh? I would tell you, here's what's embarrassing. I had mine in this like little red, kind of like old-fashioned money box. You know, it has this little flimsy clip on it on the front. Plastic, you can kind of imagine what I'm talking about. 
And I had all my letters from Kathy, you know, in my hidden secure place. Well, guess what teenage boys are going to do, or even, I think they were even a lot younger than that. You know, digging for something that belonged to mine they were going to take without my permission, they found that box. And they're sitting there, and there was a theme to those letters she wrote me. Thankfully, she's a good girl, so there was nothing we had to be embarrassed about too, too much. Um, and uh, yet there are words that keep popping up. You know, in, in your letters with your sweetheart, what kind of words would you expect to see? Okay, yeah, I was going to say, this may tell me a lot more about you than it does about our subject. Miss you, love, beautiful, you know, no one like you. I mean, you, know, you see that about 57 times in a page and a half. You know, it tells you this is important to the overall content. The same thing with any Bible book you look at. They don't all have the same keywords because they all have a different message, a different purpose. Zephaniah is no exception to this. So what do you think might be some of the key words that you'll find? And you, you know they're key by repetition. Judgment, okay. Day of the Lord, all right. So the word, so you, you, do, you do have the phrases, but I want to look at words. The word day is one of them. It's found 22 times. Okay, hope is conveyed, but it's not a key word per se. Okay, um, we don't find that word per se. Um, let me just give you just a few of them. Lord, 36 times, day of the Lord, that's already been mentioned. All, you go, well, how does all play into this? I'll show you in a moment. That's 23 times. Day is 22 times. Earth, nine times. Nation, eight times. People, eight times. Desolation, eight times. Inhabitants, seven times. Jerusalem, seven times. And gather six times. All right, so what we do, and it will almost always work. You take those keywords and see if you can't make them into a sentence and see if that sentence doesn't describe the book that you're studying. This is a book about the day of the Lord upon the earth, the nations, and Jerusalem, a day of desolation for some, and a day of gathering for others. What's the word desolation mean to you? destroyed, empty, worthless. How about gathering? What does it kind of imagery does that suggest? Good thing or bad thing? Yeah, safety, protection, acceptance. That's the book of Zephaniah, all right? Um, So what I want us to do for just a few minutes is just kind of walk through the book of Zephaniah and see how Zephaniah... Uh, lays this out. So first of all, we have a uh, a judgment on the world. That's chapter 1, verse 2 and 3. If somebody could just read that for us real quick. 1, 2, and 3. Chapter 1, verse 2, and verse 3. Okay, so how do we know that the audience is the world here? What does Zephaniah say that cues us off? Okay, everything. How does he even start? All things. Now, do you notice anything about the progression in verse 2 and 3? Okay, now, Tom, did you come up with that on your own, or did you have any kind of notation there? Not here, but... Us, hey, that's good. That's it. Here's one of those neat things that Zephaniah does that shows us really what an intelligent writer he is. He does, this is just the first of them, a lot of different reversals. I'm going to show you some. This one is one of the more obvious ones, but there's some that are more subtle. This is, the rever- this is a reversal of creation. Right? Because what's the end of it? What does God say at the end of creation, at the end of Genesis chapter 1? What did he see? Yeah, everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. But how does he start? 
day and night and all the way through the individual things. So what does he do here? He says, I'm going to destroy all. And then I'm going to destroy birds and beasts and so forth. And so what he does is he, it's a reverse funnel, right? So here's the creation. Now here is Zephaniah saying all. And I'm going to get it more narrow down to the very end of the wicked. And I'm going to ruin them all. So it's a reversal of creation. He's saying, I'm going to undo everything I did in creation. Will that get your attention? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do everything in reverse of the creation. Is he going to literally do that? Well, we know the answer to that. Did he, did he literally reverse creation? If he did, we wouldn't be here talking about Zephaniah in Bible class tonight. What is he saying? Big bad stuff is going to happen. There is a judgment that's coming. And it's a judgment that's going to come on all the earth... Um, now again, even that is somewhat representative because he's focusing on who is involved in that. So after he gets that attention and he talks about that judgment, um, this total judgment that they'd seen before, they know about Noah, they know about his background. Judah knows that, so why does Judah think that judgment won't come on them? All right, so that's where we get to number two. It's a judgment on Judah and Jerusalem. And this is a big part of the book. and We won't read this. I'll just have you note some things as we go through chapter 1, verse 4, through chapter 2 and verse 3. How do you know that this is a judgment? Do you see any judgment language in this section? Stretch out my hand against. That's verse 4. What else? Cut off, off, verse 4. What else do you see? And this is what you're going to see more than anything in this section. What does he refer to? Hint. It's over the top of your Bible, probably. Over chapter 1. Right under the book of Zephaniah. <laughs> right over chapter 1. Y'all already said it a couple of times. The day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. Is that judgment language? Everywhere you see it. Anywhere you see it. And here's the interesting thing. It's mentioned. I said, Remember I said it's 22 times in the book? It's 15 times here. And if we had the time, what you could do is walk through. And I would suggest that you do that. If you want to know what Zephaniah is about... Put a box around or put an underline around every time you see the word day or, uh, or that day or the day of the Lord and it will really make it pop off the page. So the day of the Lord is simply a day of judgment. So, so in answer to your question, we're going to see it two ways in the book of Zephaniah. In chapter 1, 1 through chapter 3 and verse 8, it's a day of punishment. It's a day of visitation that's going to punish. And we'll see that as the book unfolds. You're going to see how that plays out. It's an appointed time of, of vengeance if it's negative or a blessing and restoration if it's good. Yep. So right now, as you see it in this section, it's a bad day. It's a day of distress. It's a day of destruction. It's a day of God's wrath. And so if you walk through and you take the time to see all of that, in this section, it's a day of judgment against Judah and of Jerusalem. But it brings up the question, a couple of questions. The first question is, is God just being arbitrary? Is God just annoyed and irritated? Why is this day coming against Judah and Jerusalem? So if you want to answer that, start at verse 5. What are some of the charges? Idolatry, verse 5. Okay, now they, well, they weren't seeking the Lord. What does he say first, though? Okay, but even before that, go, go back after the, the, the idolatry one. What did they do? They called... 
Right after it says the, the, about the idols, what does it say in, in verse 5? Yeah, but what do they also do? Okay, so, they bow that, all right, so there's our idolatry. They bow down on, the, on their roofs to the God of heaven. Okay, okay, don't miss that. They swear oaths how? And who's that? It's God. They swear oaths by God. Good thing or bad thing? Well, wait a minute. To swear oaths by God if you keep them, which is assumed, good or bad thing? That's not the problem. What do they also do? Out of the same mouth, out of the same acts of devotion, they give off uh, uh, oaths to the Lord God, but also to milk them. What do we call that in modern vernacular? Well, yeah, I have hypocrisy in my notes. The fancy word is syncretism. I think that was mentioned one of the other minor prophets. Uh, uh, I want to say this in a way that I'm not trying to be ugly or, or, or bashing. Okay, so please, please catch that. Um, but those that are in, in, engaged in this would, would freely admit this. So when you think about what voodooism is, anybody familiar? What's the origins of voodooism? You know what voodoo is, right? The little dolls and the pins and all that. All right, so it's, it's, it's the mixing of two religions. It's native religion, and what else? Again, not to be, I'm not trying to be harsh. It's, it's not, it's, it's Catholicism. And this has been a practice throughout the centuries, is to blend that religion with the local religion. That blending of religions is called syncretism, where you take elements of different religions. There are modern religions today. Our friends uh, who are Buddhist and Hindus, they uh, openly embrace a lot of different elements of a lot of different religions and bring them together into one. That's what Judah's doing. They're like, I need to bow to God because it's important. He's the God of heaven. But these guys around us, they're, they're also offering up vows to milk them. And so I want to cover all my bases, so we're going to do that as well. How's God feel about that? Day of the Lord's coming. Don't, I don't want you to do that. Um, you, you walk on through, there's a bunch of things. There's uh, compromise. They wear foreign garments. Does that probably strike you as weird? That means that we're embracing foreign customs. It would almost always involve uh, the worship of gods. Um, verse 9, superstition. Um, now you guys may be, I'm, if you're a sports fan, baseball players are probably the worst at it, you know, you know some of the superstitions, right? You don't you don't walk on the line when you're walking off the field off the diamond. You step over it. If a guy's throwing a no hitter, you do not say anything about it. If you're down uh, in the late innings, you turn your hat inside out and backwards. It's you know now I'm I'm not saying those are wrong. I, I hope they're not. Whenever I'd go and watch baseball games for my teams, I'd put on my rally hat and that's all in fun. I know I'm not affecting the outcome when. When my team plays on Saturday, I wear the clothes first thing in the morning. It's a, it's a must, and my coffee cup has their symbol on the outside. Maybe y'all are saying I need to repent, though the day of the Lord is going to come on me. But, but what they were doing was seriously, they were vesting their hope, their future, their livelihood, and everything on superstitious acts as opposed to what? What would be the opposite of that? Faith and trust in God. And so they had resorted to something in the substitution of trusting God to take care of them. There's indifference, verse 12. There's greed and materialism, verse 13. There's no shame, chapter 2 and verse 1. They couldn't blush over sin. And so he pleads with them. And then for the sake of time, we don't have the time to go into this. If you want to say who, 
Who is going to bring this about in Judah and in Jerusalem? If you just want to note this, it's all, verse 4. It's the men, chapter 1 and verse 12. It's the princes, the judges, the prophets, and the priests, chapter 3, verse 1 through verse 4. Um, it's not going to be a pleasant experience. This banquet that the Lord is inviting them to is not a party. It's not a, a fun feast. It's a, it's a time in which he's going to present their punishment to them. And so God wants them to appreciate their his wrath is justified because of their sin. Now Josiah had put some reforms in place, but all of this uh, there's been a century, a hundred years of unrighteous leadership, and the people have embraced it in their lifestyle. And Zephaniah says, separate yourself from it, but it's so hard for them to do that. Um, and he says, you're going to be punished for it. He doesn't tell them who it's going to be. There are two prophets that are going to come along just right after this. One is Jeremiah. One is Habakkuk. Habakkuk, uh, Gary's going to talk about, Gary uh, Bratcher in a couple of weeks. It's almost the same time frame. Jeremiah is, is contemporary. Uh, and they're going to identify who the, who the enemy is that's going to take them away. Who is it? Who's going to take Judah away? The Babylonians. All right. So now we have chapter 2, verse 4 through 15, a judgment on surrounding nations. For the sake of time, just picture this. You have Judah or Jerusalem in the center of your compass. And in case they were going to trust in, and they have been associating with these uh, nations around them, God says, all right, let me take you around your compass. Look to the west. Who's to the west? If you're looking in chapter 2, verse 4 through 7. It's the Philistines. He says, I'm taking them out. And by the way, they're not coming back. They're going to be gone. Who's going to live where the Philistines were living after uh, Judah gets back from Babylon? Judah. I'm going to give it to them for a possession. All right, it says, now, now, look to your east. Who's to your east? Ammon and, Moab. Ammon, and, uh, uh, yeah, uh, Ammon and Moab. By the way, where'd they come from? Okay, more directly. Lot. Do you remember how they came about? Remember, Lot's one of three people that escapes. He escapes with who? Who are the other two? His daughters. What happens with Lot and his daughters? Moab and Ammon. We'll just leave it at that. Because of what event? What happens? Sodom and Gomorrah. What does Zephaniah say is going to become of Moab and Ammon? Zephaniah is so brilliant. They're going to become like Sodom and Gomorrah. Don't trust to your west. Don't trust to your east. Okay, let's look to the south. Who's to the south? Cush. The Ethiopians, what's going to happen to them? Going to destroy them. Look to your north. You have the Assyrians. What's going to happen to them? They're gone. Everything you might trust in. And by the way, Egypt and Assyria had been the world powers for the last several centuries. You know what's happening? They're going to go off the stage. There's going to be some new powers coming in. It's going to be the Babylonians, the Medes, and the Persians. They're going to fight against one another in 606 B.C. in Car uh, Carchemish. And the old guard, the Egyptians and the Assyrians... Wiped out. They're going to be destroyed. And then these new powers are going to come in. So then he gets to the center of the compass. And that's what he does next. We have the judgment against the center. Jerusalem in chapter 3, verse 1 through verse 8. There's so much more I want to say, but I am sensitive to the fact 
that you've been sitting here for a while. And I want to get to the end there. Uh, but just suffice it to say, God rounds it all up here. He says, these Gentiles that you want to be like, that you trust in, they can't save you. You're acting like them. All it's going to do is bring God's wrath. Um, but then we have the end of it. Chapter uh, 3, verse 9 through 20. Number 5, a future restoration of God's people. <clears throat> There's a dramatic shift from the day of judgment that's coming. Do you notice in verse 11 and verse 16 of chapter 3? That day. Look at verse 19 and 20. At that time. There's three subdivisions here. First of all, you have a restoration of pure speech. That's chapter 3, verse 9 through 13. Um, it also now here's the other sophisticated wordplay I'm gonna I'm going to show you. What's gonna happen? Chapter three, verse nine, right out the gate. What does he say? Okay, can you read just read nine through thirteen for us? Okay, all right. So let's describe this people. What is said about these people who come together and with pure lips uh, give honor to God? What's said about them? Okay, what they're going to do, they're all going to call on the name of the Lord. What does that speak of? What does that suggest? They're all going to do it. What's our word for that? It is faithful, but they're all doing it. Unity. Unity. They're one. But where, who are these people? Where do they come from? They're a remnant. Where do they come from? They're scattered, right? They're scattered. And what's happening to them? these scattered people? They're coming together. They're coming back. They're coming together. And they're doing what with regard to God? Being rebellious or submissive? Does this sound like the reverse of something else? How about Genesis chapter 11? Anybody know what happens in Genesis chapter 11? It's right after the flood. Tower of Babel. What happens at the Tower of Babel? How are, what word would you use to, to describe them? Before that. Before that. They're united. They all have one goal, one aim. Are they in subjection to or rebellion against God? Rebellion. What does God do with them? They're all right here building this tower. What does God do? They're gone all over the place. What's he doing now? Bringing them back. And what are they doing? They're not rebelling. They're submitting to God. Zephaniah. Got to be one of the smartest. I mean, they're all the Holy Spirit's right in all of this, but... Man, the clever things he does throughout this book. To say the new time is going to be a sign of change in which people are going to get the blessings of God because they're going to be restored, they're going to repent, and they're going to find relief as a result of that. In chapter, verse 14 through 17, there's a song of celebration. Not only would they use pure speech, but they would use their voice to shout for joy. Uh, verse 17, he will exult over you with joy. He will... Um, be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. What's going to happen in the time of restoration? How's God going to feel about these people? That he is saying, you're going down into judgment. You're going to be punished. You. With his love. Dramatic change. And then 18 through 20, a reversal of exile. You're going to come back. There's going to be restoration. So much more we could say about that. Um, and I just won't do this. But the, here's the major themes. I'll at least discuss them for you. Obviously... One of the major themes of the book of Zephaniah is what? The day of the Lord. If you don't remember anything else, Neil taught them that Zephaniah is about the day of the Lord. 
It's a bad day, 1, one through 3, 8, for the disobedient. It's a great day for the restored, chapter 3, verse 9 through verse 20. And the other kind of goes along with that, and that's the warrior God. It refers to God as a warrior in both sections. What kind of warrior God is he in the first three chapters at eight verses? He's fighting against the disobedient. But I want you to notice something. He's also a warrior God who saves and loves and allows none to be put to shame. Verse 17. The Lord your God in the midst of you is a victorious warrior. Now, I want God fighting for me. I don't want God fighting against me. But what determines which God I get? Me. My choice. Am I going to hang out with the Manassehs and the Ammons of the world in leadership, or am I going to hang out with the Hezekiahs and the Josiahs? I get to choose that. And God is saying, look, remember back in chapter 2, if you'll humble yourself, maybe it is that God will hide you. Another one of these neat things that Zephaniah does, because what's Zephaniah's name mean? Maybe you'll be like me. Maybe God will hide you from the wrath of, of his, his own wrath. It's, it's amazing. You read through Zephaniah, and I hadn't really drilled down on it, and it's, it's one of those books, let's just be honest, where if you're in a reading program, you go through, and if you had to take a test on it, 30 seconds later, you might not get one question right. But when you start digging down and looking at it more closely, it's amazing the layers. And what he's doing there to communicate this message, yes, on the face of it, it sounds like a very simple message. Judgment or salvation. But there's a particular people at a particular time that needed that and needed to hear the message as it was. Um, just for your edification, the only allusion to Zephaniah in the New Testament is Revelation 14 and verse 5. Um, that harkens back to chapter 3 and verse 13 where Zephaniah says... The remnant of Israel will do no wrong and tell no lies. And John uses this to refer to all the redeemed in Revelation 14. In that 144,000 that we'll study about in class here in a few weeks. Um, I'll just give you the lessons and then we'll wrap up. The lessons, seeing Jesus in uh, Zephaniah. Um, number one, the people in Zephaniah's day tried to have it both ways. They had a divided allegiance between God and this world. They wanted to make vows to the Lord of heaven and vows to milk them. It won't work. Does that sound like something Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6? What does he say? Can't serve two masters. Going to choose one. Joshua, what does he say? Choose you this day. Joshua 24, 15. Number two. The judgment of Jesus begins with his people. The judgment... In Zephaniah's message, begins with Judah and then goes to the nations. 1 Peter 4, 17, judgment begins with us. Begins at us. Number three, repentance precedes restoration. God, in the first three chapters, the two and a half chapters, says repent. In the last, he says, I'll reward you. That's New Testament. Acts three nineteen. repent and turn. That you may, sins may be forgiven, that the, the seasons of refreshing may come. And then number four, God will give his people rest. That's chapter 3, verse 13. Obviously, that makes you think of what? Yeah, okay, yeah, that's fair enough. The, the ultimate rest. What does Jesus say when he comes? O heart bowed down with sorrow, O eyes that long for sight. What's the chorus say? 
Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. All right. So Zephaniah. Zephaniah presents a balanced view of God. He is just. He is holy. And so he will execute wrath on the disobedient. But he's full of grace and mercy. And so he wants to bless and restore. If you want to think about the book of Zephaniah as having two poles. So imagine, if you will, a pole at either end. You've got the pole of judgment and wrath, the pole of grace and blessing at either end. And he says, you choose the pole that you'll cling to. All right, let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much for your word and how rich it is. We know that as we study it, we'll never get to the bottom of it. We'll never plumb its depths. And yet, Father, we're so grateful for the fact that it's simple and that that we can understand that and the things that we need for life and godliness you have made clear to us. Thank you for Zephaniah. We realize it's one of the 66 inspired books, and so it has great value in your eyes for our lives. Help us, Father, to take this message to realize, Father, that because you are holy, you are a God who is a God of judgment. But Father, we are so thankful that because of Christ, that the day to come, that time, will be a glorious and wonderful day as we stand before your Son and hear him say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Help us, dear God, to strive to be humble as you called for the people in Zephaniah's day. To humble ourselves so that we might be hidden under the wings of your dear Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. All right, you've got about 25 minutes or so to...